My name is Edgar. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, it's such it's such beautiful honor um, to be celebrating Jesus with you this morning. So, um, the last two election cycles. Oh, that's hot. The last two election cycles, uh, I've gotten a question that's been similar. Uh, most, a lot of people just ask me, you know, who, who has God said will win the elections? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, most of the times what people are saying, uh, you know, it's... It's, it's not that, that God hasn't spoken or anything, but uh, people have this, this obsession, this obsession, and I think it's, um, it's, it's uh, of, uh, oh, thank you very much. People have this obsession to know the future, not just about elections, but people often have this obsession with knowing the future and outcomes, and I think it's fueled by our need for control and, you know, a bit of fear. Um, and, and sadly, in politics, when we are asking, or oh, who has God said will win, we're often people are asking, does God agree with me? And, um, and outrightly, sadly, we also co-opt Jesus and make him agree with us. Uh, we often decide that, oh, if Jesus, uh, if I don't like those people, then Jesus doesn't like them either. If, if I don't like people who, who like this candidate, if I don't like people who, who believe in this, then probably Jesus doesn't like them either. Even when we ask, oh, who is God said will win? Sadly, we're often saying, doesn't Jesus agree with me? You know, um, if, I, if I love my country more than anything, it definitely has to be what Jesus stands for also. Uh, you know, if, if I vote for X, then I guess Jesus would have voted for X too, you know. We often co-opt Jesus to, you know, to agree with us, even when we ask, well, who has God said will win? And so, um, last election, uh, I realized that, you know, if you dare say, as a pastor, uh, if you dare mention a candidate, for that person who, whose candidate it is not, you are no longer an anointed man of God. You've just lost, that is the day you, you, you cease hearing from God. And maybe you need to do a bit of prayer and fasting. Uh, the problem is, um, it, it creates this culture, a terrible culture of, of politicians pandering to the church. And we see it all across the globe. Politicians trying to cozy to the church because they've, they, they've um, decided that the church is a voting block. So if we get close to the church, if we say the things the church wants to hear, then maybe we get that vote. In some nations, uh, you know, the, the, the church is co-opted for political gains. Not very different in Kenya either. You know, I remember when people, were, when we were going to to referendum to decide uh, on the constitution, uh, there was a there was a closing up to the church, and that's when you know, in a lot of ways, because many people decided not to listen to their church leaders. In a lot of ways, uh, the church lost its voice in a very crucial moment. 
In, in Kenya, it, it, it's caused this scenario where people uh, do not want to be accountable for their money just because they've given it to the church. It's like, well, as long as it's in the offering basket, who cares? It's, it's God's money. And then, so it's, it's caused this terrible culture. And here's the thing. As I, as I said two weeks ago, it's not unimportant. Politics is not unimportant. Uh, politics impact the spiritual atmosphere of a country. Politics and, and governance impact how people um, live together and how they experience life. Therefore, it impacts the, the spiritual atmosphere as well. It's not unimportant. I just think believers are called to engage very differently. We, the church, is called to engage very differently. Jesus was aware and even participated in the politics of his day. He paid taxes and even encouraged people, give Caesar what was Caesar's. And Caesar and his government was oppressive. The taxes were ridiculous. It was a colonial government. Yet Jesus went, yeah, you know what, pay your taxes. Jesus paid taxes himself. When Jesus was before Pilate, he, he acknowledged that he had authority. And he said to him, you know, any authority you have uh, over me is, is only given to you by God. So it's not, that, it's not unimportant, we're just called to engage differently. Paul, Paul was very aware of his Roman citizenship and he used it. One time he was, you know, he'd been beaten up, jailed and he said, hey, do you know I'm a Roman citizen and this is how I demand you treat me. So it's not about being unaware, it's not that it is unimportant. I think the church is called to engage very differently. I think, you know, it is, you look at the story of scripture, you look at the, at the way Jesus presented the gospel of the kingdom. For him, it is incidental. It's incidental what the politics of the day is. And even for Paul, it is incidental. It is, it is not that important to, um, who, is in, who is in our White House, uh, sorry, our State House or um, our Governor's Mansion. It is incidental. Why? Because we have bigger things to fry. Our real battle is with the spiritual forces and realities behind those political institutions. There are spiritual realities, there's a spiritual realm that exists, and our issues as believers, as the church, are the, um, are the spiritual realities uh, behind them. So therefore our engagement looks like tearing down lies and philosophies uh, um, which are often the enemy's chief weapon. The enemy fights with lies, and you find lies on any side of a political divide. The church cannot cause it with any side because you find lies uh, that, that tear people away from Jesus on both sides of, uh, of any political divide. Our engagement, our fight is with those lies. Then the second bit of our engagement politically looks like submitting our own thoughts and emotions uh, and ideas that rise up in us to obedience to Jesus. See, the way we are wired, the way we are wired predisposes us to prefer certain uh, philosophies and political ideas. Each one of us. You know, uh, people, uh, studies show that we actually don't uh, choose our beliefs because, well, I was so convinced. We choose them because they make us happy. It's emotional. And so we must learn as believers to offer, uh, to 
constantly submit our thoughts, submit our emotions, submit ideas that rise up inside us and outside of us uh, to obedience to Jesus. Because there are things, there are ideas uh, and thoughts that rise up in me, there are ideas that come from from, from the politicians that might be preferred to me, that will excite me but have nothing to do with obedience to Jesus. That's how we're called to engage. That's our primary responsibility as we engage in politics. Um, So no matter which party or, or politician people support, our number one job as believers is to remember that if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. It is to constantly ask ourselves, Lord, what do you think about this? There is this idea, there is this platform that our party stands on. What do you think about this? Because if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. If Jesus is Lord, your political party is not. If Jesus is Lord, your favorite politician is not. If Jesus is Lord, you are not. We have to constantly, constantly, because let's not pretend that we get to a place where, oh, we're done. We have to constantly, each, each moment we engage, ask ourselves, Jesus, uh, ask Jesus, what do you think about this? What do you think about this new thing that's being said by this person? What do you think about how I should engage? Because for us, we have only one Lord. For us, we have only one kingdom. Um, but all that is good, but really often at the end of the day, we really just want to know, how would Jesus vote in August? Like it's good to say, well, submit it to the Lord, but how would Jesus vote in August? Uh, you know, what if there's really a Christian party or, or, a, or, or a Christian running for government? What if? How would Jesus vote in that case? What if we are right? What if you and your political party are right? How would Jesus vote in that case? Now, there's a story that we all know about, about uh, uh, the, the fall of Jericho as, as Israel is, is advancing into the, into the promised land. And uh, Jericho is a fortified city. It's powerful. It's hard to beat it. And, you know, Israel was under the leadership of Joshua, and they're getting ready for a military showdown. They're getting ready for battle. They're getting ready for a political campaign. Because let's not, let's, not, let's not kid ourselves. This was a political campaign. They're about to throw off, off a different nation and, and take over. So they're getting ready for a political showdown uh, with military campaign. And so then there's an angel who shows up, who commands God's armies, uh, appears um, ready, uh, and the angel is dressed ready for battle. So, you know, shouldn't it be obvious which side the angel will be on? I mean, this is Israel we're talking about. This is God's firstborn. Shouldn't it be obvious? Shouldn't it be obvious that Israel was God's people, therefore the angel will be there for them? Shouldn't it be obvious that they're entering a battle that they were supposed to engage in, and so it should go without saying uh, which, which side this angel uh, should be on. Isn't it obvious which God's side would be politically? Probably the Christian candidate, right? I, I don't, 
I don't know if there is a Christian, you know, who knows who, whose heart, right? But let's assume we, we would know. Isn't it obvious that God would be on the side of the Christian candidate or, you know, the candidate who's giving money to the church? Sadly, that, that, that sounds like towards someone. But anyway, uh, shouldn't it be obvious that it, it, uh, God would be on the side of the candidate promising to protect the church or enact policies that, that uh, are of Christian value? Shouldn't it be obvious that, that, that just where God would stand? And if he were to show up or send an angel who commands God army, God's armies, shouldn't it be obvious which side this angel would be? Well, actually, I want us to check that out. It's not that obvious. So Joshua 5, 13 to 15. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Shouldn't it be obvious which side you're supposed to be on? Neither, he replied. But as the commander of God's armies, of the armies of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? Here's the message. The commander of the Lord's armies replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The angel says, neither. In a, in a, in a campaign that should be so obvious, do we not know who's, God, uh, who's our God's people? Do we not know that this battle is sanctioned? Do we not know how do you then say neither? Because it's not that obvious. Every, every time, it is, sorry, it is obvious that every time God shows up, he shows up for God's kingdom. As the commander of God's armies, he's there, but he's there for the kingdom of God. All other kingdoms are temporary. All other kingdoms are temporary and will fail. Even Israel, uh, 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 the, the, the kingdom they ended up building failed. All big empires have come and gone. Even now, there's, there's great shifts in, in, uh, geopolitically because the empires that used to be are, are, are no longer on firm ground. Why? Because every other empire comes and goes except for the kingdom of God. And no other kingdom or political outfit is the equivalent of the kingdom of God. No other kingdom or political outfit is the equivalent of the kingdom of God. Even the church is not the equivalent of the kingdom of God. So even what we think are Christian parties, if there are any, are not the kingdom of God. Even when people claim that they are, they are Christian nations, that is not the kingdom of God. And so every time God shows up, his side is very obvious, the kingdom of God. Even Israel, the firstborn of God, as, as God often calls him in, in the Old Testament, is not the kingdom of God. And they went on and did win the battle they were about to get into. But that was not the kingdom of God. It is incidental who sits in state house or our governor's mansion. And I think the reason it's incidental, and I'm not saying it is not important, it is not unimportant, but it's, the reason it's incidental who wins the election is because it is already settled in heaven who is our king. It is already settled in heaven who our devotion should be to. It is already settled in heaven who calls the shots in our lives. 
So for us it is really incidental whether Jibu Nili or, you know, it really doesn't matter. Plus also our, our battle is with, with the principalities and the spiritual realities behind the institutions because some of, some, you know, uh, I, the first governor of Nakuru was, um, I forget his name. Yes, Kenodia. And now we've had Lee, was it? No, I, you know, and, and there are things that have remained the same. We can change these people over and over and over again, but certain things just remain the same. Why? Because, because there are spiritual realities behind these institutions. That's where our issue is. And, uh, you know, so, so what, what, what should Joshua do when he learns that actually God has sent the, the head of his armies, but he's on neither side? Okay, so what should Joshua do? The angel says to Joshua, um, the commander of the, Lord, of, the, uh, of the Lord's armies replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did. Joshua is in the middle of a political and military campaign. But God calls him to recognize his holiness and respond. Joshua is in the middle of a battle that he must engage in. But God calls him to recognize God's holiness, God's otherness, and be holy himself. Take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. What is holiness? I think uh, we often mistake it to mean morality. And I'm not saying that, that morality isn't part of it. Uh, you know, and, and I think because we often mistake it to mean morality, we're busy trying to behave well instead of being holy. And that's why the church gets, um, gets carried away by politics so much because we want, we, we've reduced holiness to morality and so we want the, to judge the world by our standards. We're back to the days of the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that, that the Messiah will not come until everyone in Israel was behaving right. And the church has sadly reduced uh, holiness to um, morality. And now we want to police the world. You know, Paul famously said, I am not the one to judge those outside the church. But we've been caught up in that. We, we're carried away by that. And, and so we, we set standards and decide this is how the rest of the world should live. The problem is holiness is not equivalent to morality. Holiness is being, is being set apart for God, right? So God is completely other, so he is holy. When, when we had temples and, and altars and vessels and priests, they were considered holy because they were completely set aside for God. And it is out of that setting apart for God that every other thing flows. Because the priest is set apart for God, then he can do this. Because this vessel is set apart for God, then you can use it for this. It is the setting apart that comes first. Every other behavior should be a fruit, an outpouring of us being set apart. It is after the setting apart that our lives can truly change. It is after being holy. Behavior and morality is a fruit of being set apart for God. And it's not the other way around. It's not the other way around. 
Holiness is about undivided devotion to God. Undivided devotion. And the Lord is undivided in His devotion to us. Take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. This is the same invitation to, to believers in the church today. I am, undivided to you, I am undividedly devoted to you. Will you be undividedly devoted to me? Will you be undividedly devoted to me? And devotion has, has two elements, an active and a passive, uh, uh, active and passive elements. Devotion has uh, passive elements of, of just sitting quietly to listen to another. And the passive bit of it is actively and carefully attending to the needs and the wants and the desires of the other. It is, it is, the, it is a, the, the eye of a watchful mother right, uh, right beside, you know, sitting by, by the baby's crib, just quietly listening to the child. And, you know, uh, a friend uh, who, who's now a mother for just a few months now says that sometimes she goes, is the baby dead? Right? Because... Because she's getting used to watching over such a small baby. But, but to do that, she has to be undividedly devoted to this little thing and just listen. Listen to its breathing. But it also causes her to give her undivided attention because she'll be up at 3 a.m. in the night if it, if it calls for that and attend to this, to this little thing that gives nothing in return. It takes, it takes, feed me. Do the baby talk with me. Walk me around. It's undivided devotion. Undivided devotion looks, looks like the, the beautiful service of, of the waiters we love in the places we go to because they stand there and listen to you as if you're the only thing that matters. And you're going, uh, I wonder what I should take today. You know, I, I just learned that, that waiters don't like being told, oh, you fix, what do you think I should have? It's like, hey, I'm not here to make up your mind for you. But they will stand there and listen to you, undivided attention. Then they will quicken their feet and serve you. That's what devotion looks like. Devotion looks like the beginning of, of, of an enchanting love when two lovers just stare at each other's eyes and they're just listening. Oh, her heartbeat. Her heartbeat. And your fast salary comes in and you're just like, oh, I've got to take her out on the most expensive date. Right? Oh, yeah. God help us. This really is our biggest call. This really is our biggest call, even as we engage politically. Asked another way, where are you spending your time and your money? Because that will tell you what you're devoted to. Where are you spending all your time and money? Because that is where you're devoted to. Some spend more time and money on our on our preferred political outfits. 
And because there's a lot of voter apathy in, in, amongst the young people uh, uh, in Kenya today, actually, it's, it's not because they're now, we're now spending more time and money on, on Jesus. No, we're just spending it on, on, on other things, on Instagram. That, that's where our devotion is. You know, the reality is we, we spend a maximum of two hours in church together, and, and for some people it's very long. What do we do with... And maybe there's a worship night and you come along. We had a prayer training there and you come along. So let's, let's just say that's, you know, that's only 2% of our time. What do you do with the rest of the 98% on Monday, on Tuesday? Some of us are more obedient to our political overlords than we are obedient to Jesus. Where is our devotion? This is our number one call, even as we engage politically. So let me call the band back on stage. Wow, that was amazingly short. I think I've repaid us all for the last two weeks. It is not unimportant. It's just that we need to turn it on its head. Our number one devotion is to the king and his kingdom. Our number one devotion should be to Jesus our king. Let's focus on the main and the plain. And so for believers, that looks like, like devotion to Jesus above all else. How does it look like to prioritize our time with Jesus? Because, because you're not going to claim you're devoted to something if it doesn't cost you time and money. What does it look like to make sure that before anything else sets our, our tone for the day? Because the reality is we are at a time where the first thing people do when they wake up is their, is, is their smartphone, right? And so everything else sets our tone and agenda for the day. Everything else but Jesus. And now that it's an election cycle, there's a lot of that on our news feeds. So how, what does it look like to turn that on its head and give our devotion to Jesus and his kingdom above all else? What does it look like to, to take even ideas that are exciting for us and, and just go, Lord, what do you think about this? Lord, what do you say about this? What does it look like if we try that? And for the church, the main and the plain is, is just the simple gospel. Why don't we stand? The truth is, politics are emotional. And, and, and politicians have learned the skill of stirring people up. And that's not a problem because this is part of the journey of our transformation, how to learn
to be set apart for God, to be other, to be holy, to take off our shoes because we are standing on holy ground. So the band is going to lead us in a short song and I just invite you again just uh, to come before our Father. And uh, our prayer teams are coming up because if you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. We might get a few words of knowledge and some of you might respond. And then I'll shortly come and release us.